Welcome to Redeemer Radio Features. Stories, interviews, and conversations from Northern Indiana. This is Redeemer Radio Executive Director Cindy Black, here to talk with the Victim Assistance Coordinator for the Diocese of Fort Wayne South Bend and Assistant to the Bishop in Pastoral Care, Mary Glowowski. During this conversation, we hope to help listeners understand what happens when an allegation of abuse in our diocese arises. Mary, that's quite a title. Lots of words to your title, Victim Assistance Coordinator and Assistant to the Bishop in Pastoral Care. So help us to understand that a little bit. Um, I've been the Victim Assistance Coordinator since 2004. My primary responsibility in that role is to walk with anyone who calls our diocese and alleges that they've been harmed by a priest, and then to make sure that they have a voice in our process, uh, that that voice is heard, and um, to assist them in their healing journey. That's very common for me in other areas of my work, too, is to work with parishes, parish staffs, pastors, um, to support the good work that they're doing. But when you know we come up to something that's a difficulty, and we're not quite sure what to do or where to go, um, hopefully I can be a good resource for that to kind of help guide and help people who are doing the good work of ministry in our diocese navigate very difficult situations. So that's more of like the pastoral care piece, yes. right? Okay. right. Great. And they really meld, right? Mm-hmm. Very much what I do with victim assistance, I do with pastoral care. And certainly there's a strong pastoral care component in victim assistance. Yeah. So we've already used quite a number of terms, so it might help if we kind of go through some of those terms. I struggle even with the word victim Mm -hmm. because then it kind of identifies somebody by what was done to Mm -hmm. them Mm -hmm. when there's so much more to them than just what was done. So it like, is that a bad term for me to use or is there a better term? So in my world, we usually say victim survivor. In many instances, as the journey goes, the emphasis becomes survivor. Um, What we know is in any kind of wounding, we can often be victimized. But yes, we don't want that to become our identity. Mm -hmm. To be a survivor, somebody who has and continues to work through their pain, um, but comes out on the other side stronger and most often wanting to help other people. So we don't want to deny the victimization, but we also don't want to deny the strength and the courage of the people who come to us. And so that's why uh, even in meetings with the USCCB, we often say victim survivor. I love that. That that definitely helps me just in, in my conversations. When you receive a call, I think one of the terms used is that's the allegation, Correct. right? And then... As part of the process, you determine whether it's credible. So can you help us to understand what is considered a credible report? When someone calls me and alleges that they've been harmed in some way, I simply take the report. I don't ask a great deal of questions. I don't do any investigation because the diocese has an investigator who will do all of that. So I get the basic information. And in that call or meeting, I begin to establish my role with this person as their assistant, as somebody who's going to assist them as they walk this journey. And again, to make sure that their voice is heard. 
immediately when I receive a call and I take down the basic information, I notify Bishop Rhodes and our Vicar for Clergy, Father Mark Gertner. I'm sorry, Vicar General, Father Mm -hmm. Mark Gertner. And then we begin a process that is both investigating um, and eventually will lead to the determination of whether or not an allegation is credible. A credible allegation means this situation is more likely that it happened than it didn't. So we don't look at guilt or innocence. And in fact, when we first get an allegation, there is always a presumption of innocence for the priest until we get more information and the investigation is collected. Actually, in the end, credibility is determined by Bishop Rhodes after the recommendation from our review board. So our review board is very instrumental in that determination and that discernment. I love um, how you shared that it's presumed there there is an innocence presumed, just like due process in secular courts. Correct. Um, because I often hear people, because they've known a priest's goodness and seen good, that their first response is to say there's no way that it happened. Which is a perfectly understandable, you know, to go to that place that this Mm -hmm. couldn't possibly happen. And we know that in my work, not just in victim assistance work, but many people call me because they're troubled in some way. And it's not necessarily sometimes that things are true or false. It's, again, kind of navigating through that with someone. Um, And if they want to make a report, we receive that report with an openness assuming that they're not lying, but also, again, with the presumption of innocence for the priest. When we receive a call and I notify Bishop Rhodes and Father Mark Gertner, my part is to focus on the victim, alleged victim. Their part, Father Mark then, and in in some instances now, Father Matt Coonan, who's our vicar for priest, will contact the priest immediately And while the investigation is happening, the priest will be asked to take an administrative leave during that process. So they're not immediately assumed to be guilty. It's just we're asking them to take an administrative leave so that they can step out while the investigation happens. Right. Because I would assume part of that is because you want to make sure that if there is something going on, that it doesn't continue going on. But also that they don't have to get up in front of their congregation and pretend nothing's going on when they're dealing with the investigation. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And it is is truly out of care for all involved. I think that's something as a layperson I haven't really thought of, that that really is helpful for the priest as well. Well, you can imagine it's a terrible blow and stress to get this phone call. So... In order to make sure that their voice is protected and cared for, as well as the alleged victim, this process has served us well. Following contacting the priest and the start of the administrative leave, Mm -hmm. then what happens with the priest? Mm -hmm. Well, the administrative leave lasts as long as the investigation lasts, and The investigation, depending on the circumstances, can go very quickly or it can take a while. Immediately when I receive an allegation, if the priest is still living and it's abuse against a minor, then I do report to the civil authorities. So that can either be the county that 
something may have happened in, or it could be the Department of Children's Services. I will continue to focus on the alleged victim. The priest has the right of all due process. Um, The priest will be interviewed as well as the alleged victim. Then once that happens, uh, all that information is turned over to those of us who are directly involved. And then Bishop Rose will call a review board meeting. And we meet with our review board members who will listen to the case very diligently and very carefully presented by the investigator. I may speak for the victim in some way, just kind of fill in some things that it's important for the victim to, alleged victim to have said. Then there's a lot of discussion and discernment. And ultimately, the review board will make a recommendation to Bishop Rhodes whether something is credible or not. Once a priest has a credible allegation and is removed from public ministry, what are the various things that can happen from there? Mm -hmm. When an allegation is determined to be credible, that priest's name will go on our list. And um, that's a really sad and painful day for us when we have to do that, as you can imagine, even more so for the priest, I know. The charter is very clear that one allegation that is credible, that priests cannot, they can be laicized, they can resign, they can be removed. I mean, there's all kinds of canonical processes and all of that. We have had some instances of priests who've been determined to have credible allegations, have lived a life of called what's called prayer and penance. And that's something that they discern with Bishop Rhodes what that can look like, but it's always in a place where a priest would be monitored and they cannot cause any harm. When a new allegation comes to light, I always wonder, like, were there, like, red flags um, or were, like, were behaviors exhibited that we just missed or were there boundaries that were either violated or do we need new boundaries to be put in place? I assume that you're always looking at those things as far as the process and improving the process. Mm -hmm. Here's the thing that I think is important for everyone to understand. We often look back and then we find out information that this was happening or that was happening, or did you know he was doing this or did you know she was doing that? Well, we have to be careful of revisionist history. If we'd known those things, we would have done something about it. Most of our work when we're working, again, with vulnerable people, and by the way, that can be a priest, right? Because we all have our vulnerabilities in our, those places that are fragile. Um, when we know someone's struggling with something, we help them. If there are red flags, we attend to them. It's easy to look back when we know something in this moment and say, look at all these things that are happening. And people are coming forward and saying, I saw this or I knew this and saying, well, there were red flags. Well, but if we didn't know them, they were not a red flag to us. And again, most of our work is to help people, no matter who you are in the church, including our priests, to be healthy, fulfilled, dedicated, prayerful people. And sometimes we struggle and we reach out to help. How many things are avoided or don't happen because of that, I don't have any idea. But I think I would really... I would really encourage people to be careful about the red flag. The other thing is it's complicated, right? Somebody will say that this person in ministry is very immature. Okay, is that a red flag? 
or does it just mean they have to grow? So we, we want to be careful that we don't start labeling everything as a red flag for what. When we see somebody who has a concern or they're struggling with something, and when we see it or someone's informed us of it, we reach out to them. That's my job and the job of other people in the, in the curia to make sure that people have what they need to grow and to hopefully prevent painful things from happening. When there is a period of a credible allegation, um, do you get more reports of, um, of concerns about other people and boundaries or mm-hmm. lack of boundaries mm-hmm. and who don't call? What is the best response? Like I, I've had it in my own head where I've seen certain behaviors and I'm like, oh, that probably isn't the most prudent, but I, what is my role in that? Or what are the possible roles? Because it probably differs. Well, if someone calls us with a concern, then we will talk who is the best person to address this with someone, whether it's a minister at a parish or it's a pastor or, you know, it could be anybody. But if it's somebody working for a parish or a pastor, priest or pastor, then we discern who's the best person. And that's really a gift in our diocese because you know, there's options. And so we can consider, you know, who needs to be spoken to and who's the best person to address that. Would you say that it is best to contact the diocese so that if, is it kept in a file somewhere so that if if there are multiple calls about an issue that it identifies what might need, where there might need to be help and issues addressed? I think if someone has a serious concern, I would really encourage them if they don't feel they can go to that person or that person's supervisor, that they contact us. If it's somebody in the school, it could be Dr. Brent Knocker. It could be, I mean, we have wonderful people who work in the Curia who our job is not to be police. Our job is to serve. And that's important for everyone to understand that our role, no matter what our job and the curia is to serve the people of this diocese. On occasion, there's a serious concern that somebody's either headed down a bad path or they're concerned that somebody's being harmed. If they call us, yes, we're going to we're going to at least have a conversation and figure out what needs to be done to prevent harm. Uh, do we keep records? Well, yes, we do keep records as we should, right? But again, not to keep records so that we're policing anything, it's, it's so that, I mean, I won't be here forever, right? Um, priests leave parishes. Um, there's turnovers in staff. So there has to be some clear path if there's a concern in a particular parish, for instance, with a staff member. And then they get hired at another staff member. Well, did this ever come up again? Well, yeah, this did. But that's just being responsible. That's just being responsible. And I think especially in an organization like the church that our purpose and our existence is not just temporal. You know, we're a place that cares for eternal souls. So any kind of PR policies or or journeying with people is even that much more necessary and important that we are honoring the dignity of every person in 
any way that we can and journeying with one another. Well, that's one of the, I mean, incredible beauties of the church is, and uh, specifically my job, there's no rule, right? Except that I honor the dignity of the person in front of me and, you know, know my skill set. And if it's not in my skill set to get them help. You know, the truth is, Cindy, and I joke about this, but I think I mean it sincerely. I really hope my purgatory isn't me having God review everything, every way that I may have harmed somebody, because I know that I have. I mean, that's the bottom line is to realize that any one of us has the possibility of causing harm if we lose sight of what's going on in our own hearts, if we miss what our role is in that person's life, if we lose a sense of true humility, if we don't have compassion for those who have caused harm, to know that the path that they're walking could be mine if I don't pay attention to myself and what's going on in my own heart. So again, I don't need to judge, but it is a privilege. Again, I, you know, I know I use that word a lot, but it truly, I believe that, that, that we are in this moment and, and have the opportunity to be in the truth. And it's about having mercy, mercy for others and mercy for ourselves. No. But I really cannot end a day not thinking about the goodness I encounter, the ways that maybe I failed, not maybe, the ways that I have failed, cut out maybe. (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, And then entrusting that to God to help me do better. And I'm sure even many of the men who are on the list pray that as well. And I know our victim survivors do. I think it's important to understand um, a a lot of questions have come up about transparency uh, in recent years, actually, regarding abuse allegations. Transparency means that everyone in our diocese should know who we are, what we do, and how we do it. The point of this is so that they have an assurance that we have a process that we follow to the letter to make sure that everyone involved, the alleged victim and the priest who's been accused, that they're protected and that they're cared for in this process. Oftentimes people confuse transparency with us providing information that is specific to a case that we cannot provide. And part of that is to make sure that the investigation is done without any kind of undue influence or lots of opinions or that we in some way misrepresent something that has happened. Important to understand that we're talking about people's lives here, the alleged victim and the priest. And so we have a responsibility to keep private as much as we can to protect what they need because an investigation is going on. At the same time, wanting people to be assured that the transparency is about the process that they can call us, that they know who to call, that if they have concerns or questions, they can call us. And then as the investigation unfolds, more information specifically will be provided in that situation. But until then, in many instances, especially if there's a civil investigation going on or criminal investigation in some instances, there are many things that we can't say um, because those entities may ask us not to say anything. And again, that's to protect the rights of the people who are involved. So I think it's helpful for me to remember that transparency is more about the process 
that things are being dealt with. That's where the transparency is so important as a church that we know that things aren't being swept under the rug or victims aren't being coerced into not coming forward or things like that. So the process speaks more to transparency, whereas privacy, we really just have to be careful. I mean, we're we're in a world where news travels fast and and sometimes we can want to know more than is really good for us to know, especially when it comes to another person's um, boundaries. Right. Or and, you know, sometimes it's not um, more detail comes out as situations uh, become clear and they are fact. The last thing we want to do is ever, you know, offer innuendo or suspicion or something that is not rooted in the truth. Absolute. You know, mm-hmm. and you can imagine in these situations, truth can be very difficult, you know, because you're talking about people's experiences. And it is privacy, but I, I think it has more to do with dignity, actually. You know, people come to me with lots of things and, and then other people will have questions about it. And I often will remind people, if this was you and your family, and I think that's important to understand, it's not just these, the alleged victim and the accused priests. It's all the people who know them and love them, all the people that they, the priests have ministered to, all the people that this alleged victim has had encountered or had any kind of incident or just relationship with. And so it is broad and deep, the possibility for wounding. So it is absolutely incumbent on those of us who are involved in this to keep information as tight and clear as we can. And the transparency then is when we can offer something, we will, but not before, not before, because that doesn't serve the people who are directly involved well, but it also doesn't, it doesn't serve us well, right? Because if it's not correct, it causes harm. It's not like it's just a mistake. No, it causes harm to maintain their dignity. We have to be very careful. One of the painful realities of a process, especially when it's regarding a beloved priest, which almost always that's the case, there's great frustration when people haven't heard what's happening in a particular case. The truth is there are so many different ways that this can go canonically and certainly um, civilly or criminally, although that's rare because most of our cases are old. So the canonical process can be very frustrating. And so people will say, this happened, this priest has been falsely accused, and we've heard that this priest has been exonerated, and and the diocese is withholding this information and won't let this priest come back. When the truth is that in some cases, when we have to send an entire file, case, the whole thing to the CDF or Rome, receiving an answer can take a long time. We'll often hear comments that we're withholding information or we're not being transparent when the truth is we simply have nothing to say, that it got to this point and then the case had to be submitted, whether it's to the CDF or to the Rome or in some cases even to Pope Francis. So when people don't hear anything from us, it simply means that, that something hasn't been, there hasn't been a determination beyond us at this point, and we're waiting. And I know that's very frustrating for people. 
And, you know, I frequently have people call and they'll say, this priest or that priest has been exonerated. And I try to explain to them, no, that's not the case. Because if that, if there was a determination like that, they would hear from Bishop Rhodes. You mentioned CDF in that list. Can you tell us what that is? The Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith is an ecclesiastical body. That means a group of people who assist the Pope in adjudicating or coming to some kind of decision on certain matters, including sexual abuse of minors by clerics. How long does that process We have no control over it. We have no control. So it can be months. It can be years. But it's important to understand it's not just we who are waiting. It's not just the accused priest who's waiting, but also the alleged victim. So, I mean, it's a, it, that is a very painful part of this, or it can be. It can be. Our investigation, our process, can work very quickly. And, you know, it can be a couple weeks. It just depends on the particular situation. But once we have to send it on, we have no control over that any longer. And, again, if there's nothing, that just simply means that we're waiting, too that there's really nothing more to. And I think how could we grow as a, in our understanding that is it's truly not something that's being withheld. If a claim has been shown to be unfounded, it's important that the diocese do everything that we can and take every step possible to restore the good name of the person who was falsely accused, whether that's a priest or a coach, or a teacher, or a minister like me. It could be anyone that the church would then take action to restore the good name of that person. Mercy and justice Mm -hmm. go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. So a common thing going back to the people close to the priest, the family, and people that have had very positive experiences, Mm -hmm. because... That hasn't been our experience, and we want to presume innocence. Oftentimes, we can say or assume that the alleged victim is lying or misinterpreted things. Mm-hmm. Or how does that play into, mm-hmm. um, you know, your assistance for both the priest and for mm-hmm. the victim? Well, the truth is, you know, we don't live in a binary world, right? And those of us who've harmed other people in our lives, which is you all, know, of all of us, right, can do amazingly good things. And sometimes great harm can be, you know, can happen. Um, and so people's experience, whatever end of that spectrum and everything in between are real and true. The thing I will say, in all the years that I've been doing this, most of the victim survivors I've served have come to me with two particular reasons that they've come forward. The first 100% of the time, almost like hands down, is they want to make sure that no one else can be harmed. And the second is if someone else comes forward that we believe them. With those kind of motivations, even if there's confusion in the story or questions and, you know, we're not seeing anything empirical, I've never encountered someone whose intent was to harm a priest. I just haven't. Our victim survivors are deeply wounded, and so they are very cautious about wounding anyone else. 
And I think sometimes that's not understood and the courage that it takes to come forward. Great courage. Um, and again, just understanding with the same generosity we want people to have towards a priest who may have harmed, to see that goodness in that person, to not judge the alleged victim, like maybe knowing uh, anecdotal information or having an experience with that person that doesn't disqualify or make what he or she is saying as wrong or untrue. So something that I heard you say years ago that I try to recall and that really helps me is here's what we know, here's what we don't know, and then here are some ways that we can respond as a community. Um, I went with you to a parish where a priest had been removed and we met with the church, the parish staff and the school staff. And hearing what we know and what we don't know and then how we can respond kept my mind from wanting to go in all different other mm -hmm. directions mm -hmm. um, and feeling helpless or hopeless. Well, what I hope people in the diocese know first and foremost is Bishop Rhodes is absolutely committed to making sure that people are safe, especially our children in this diocese. And we have an extremely strong safe environment program. And, you know, at times people say, haven't we talked about this enough? Aren't we doing this enough? This is overkill. And the answer to that is no. Because, you know, our human nature and we keep having new people. And so we have to remain vigilant to make sure that the safe environment happens. So the first thing important to know, do you know what safe environment is in this diocese and what it means and how it's lived in your particular school or parish? Important to know. And if there's something that you think isn't happening, to do something about it that's concrete to, to make sure that that's known. And I know trust in the church can be hard, but I can tell you everyone can know that when we get these calls, we're heartbroken. It's not like we kind of flip into action. We first have to sit for a moment and honestly think, oh, no. But to know that Bishop Rhodes and those of us who work for him and with him, he is going to insist on the truth, the facts, as we can find them, to make sure that we're thorough, that we follow the process, that we follow the charter, that everything is done in a proper order and correctly to protect everyone involved, including the people in the parish. Everybody. It's not just for the victim, alleged victim, and the accused priest. But don't be afraid to ask questions. Come to us. If you don't like something or you don't understand something, we serve you. And so we need to answer these questions and be able to do it in a forthright manner and with transparency. What people don't know are often the very things that we can't tell them. But knowing that eventually much more will become known and that there are people who are on it, paying attention to those things to make sure, again, everyone's rights are being respected and, you know, they're being held in care. And when a priest does have to be removed or a priest resigns and step, steps aside, no one 
is probably looking for a reason not to have to do that more than the bishop and for those of us who work with him. We know how important our priests are to the people, um, to us. We love them. One thing that kind of can make me sad sometimes is the judgment that, like, we do this so fast and it's like we're not concerned about the priests and they can just get falsely accused and we're removing them when nothing can be further from the truth. When we get calls about alleged abuse and it's a priest that's known, you know, not a deceased priest, it is always shocking. But the truth is, if you know anyone in your life who's somebody important to you and good and, you know, has just been important to you and they do something that's very wrong and caused harm, it causes shock and despair and often like this cannot possibly be true. Why we would think that would be any different for a priest who is a man than it would be for anyone else in our lives does everyone a disservice. The role of priest has a unique and incredibly important and special call, which again gets to the unique wounding, right? Because they have a unique gift. That's the thing. I mean, that, that's the complementarity there. I think it's okay for people to say, I just can't believe this. It's okay because they're so rooted in the goodness of someone. When it becomes a problem is I believe in this so much, I think that person is lying or that person brought that on or she shouldn't have done this. That's when it becomes harmful. You're never going to hear me try to convince anyone that someone has done something that they are not ready to hear or they just don't want to believe. That is, that's their journey. That's not mine. Where I have a struggle is when we work with victims and they're hearing that they brought this on themselves or they're not so innocent or they, um, that is not the point here. Important for all of us as adults and especially those of us who are in ministry. And, you know, that's sacred ground, right? Because people come to us with a vulnerability that we have to always be aware of. I've heard a lot of talk also about boundaries. And boundaries, the end result of boundaries are the fist bump and the side hug or glass in a door. Or in my instance, if I don't have glass in a door, me leaving a door cracked open. Boundaries are about the call that God has given me to fulfill in the person in front of me in their life? What, who, who has God called me to be in this particular life? If I'm sure of that, if I stay close to that, then the boundaries will be kept. What they look like can be different, but the boundaries will be kept. When a boundary is not kept by the person in power, the person who is, has the authority or power in this relationship, when a boundary is not kept, it's always on me. It's always on the person in power. It's not the person who's harmed. It's on us. And that's a hard thing, I think, for people to get their heads around. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about some ways that you and the church work with victim survivors to help them process and heal. The unique quality of woundedness in this particular abuse is that the very thing that we really lean into as people of faith, the very founding of 
grounding of who we are in terms of our faith and our love of God and counting on God to help us through something has been corrupted. So the thing that people most often who are in the church and are counting on to help them in many ways, our victim survivors will say has been taken from them. So we are privileged to be able to say to them, to be with them, and to show them, witness to them, that that doesn't have to be the case. Most of the victim survivors that I've been privileged to walk with really fight for their faith. They love God. They may struggle with our church. But I have to say that every time they ask for something, could be counseling, could be spiritual direction. Um, it could be a financial need because in many times lives have been, you know, relationships are torn and um, there's just such a deep brokenness trying to keep a job, often many broken relationships along the way. Um, how do you help repair? And usually my experience has been they know what they need. I just need to help them be able to hear themselves and then articulate that for them. A hundred percent of the time, and I mean like a hundred percent, there has never been a time that I have asked Bishop Rhodes for something on behalf of a victim that he hasn't said yes immediately, knowing that there's no one path to healing. For somebody, it might be I'm doing okay, but I've really struggled financially and I have these back taxes and I need to get out from under this. For someone else, it may be, yeah, they need counseling or they need treatment, inpatient treatment, or another person, it may be they kept dropping out of school and now they are ready to return. Can we help them? So it's an, a total letting go of what we think healing should look like and listen to them, they tell us, and you know what? We have the, the gift of being able to facilitate that. And that's really what I am. I'm a facilitator. That's what I do. You know, They're the ones with the knowledge. They know themselves. Probably one of the most profound things is when I'll ask them if they'll consider speaking to the bishop. Those meetings that I've been present have been so healing someone who wants to try confession, but they're scared, being able to call one of our priests and say, would you, would you do this? I've never been turned down. It can be anything because healing comes in, um, I mean, infinite ways. You know, the most important thing they need is to know that they matter. That even if we cannot come and this does happen, we cannot come to a determination of credibility because we just don't have anything to go on, that we don't just assume that they're lying. What they need is to know that they matter, no matter how this turns out or what it will look like in the end, that we're going to be with them. This was their experience, especially this is a case in priests who've been deceased for a long time in many instances. So we're not going to be able to come to determination of credibility, but they still matter to us. And as a church, we're going to walk with them until they can find some healing. I hadn't even thought of that, that sometimes there won't, there can be an allegation and not be enough evidence. Um, I mean, I've heard cases, but I haven't thought about it from the victim's standpoint, that there's still a need there. Just because there isn't evidence doesn't mean 
that they made it up or that they're lying. And I think, I mean, I have to struggle with that assumption. Well, wounding is, you know, is so personal, right? And when we're talking about, in some cases, memory that are 30 and 40 and 50 years old, what they have is their memory or experience, what they feel. Now, in some cases, someone will come to us. We can't really come to determination of credibility for them, but we have a priest who's already on our list and we know has abused in the past. So again, it's not that we don't believe them, but we just don't have enough to say this is credible. As church, again, not only do we have a responsibility, but we get to stay with this person. Because again, if you think about the unique nature of this kind of wounding and how it impacts someone's relationship with God, then we get to be part of repairing that, of bringing, you know, putting flesh and bones on that in a way that helps them in that faith journey. What does that journey look like for the priest during the investigation and then following the investigation? And I know that's going to vary greatly, but what are some of the things that might be offered or that he might need or might help him Mm -hmm. come to terms with everything? Mm -hmm. Actually, it's virtually the same thing. It's about providing care, and it is going to be different, just like there's no, like this isn't a monolith, right? So mm-hmm. it's it's not like every victim survivor wants the same thing. Some of them want me to call them regularly and stay in connection. Others, once we're done with what we're doing, they don't want to hear anything from me ever again. It's the same thing with the priests that we've been walking with. And um, it's so painful, as you can imagine. But... We do have a responsibility to make sure that if there's something specific that we can do to stay in touch, to remain connected, as much as they want us to, you know, they get to have a choice in that. You've done this for a long time, and I'm things have to have changed about how information is shared and released. Um, now, once you go to one parish, probably even before everyone's out of the church, it's spread through social media. How has that changed your work? And what recommendations would you have for us as far as the role of social media and all of this? When, when something big happens and we start posting things, you know, what does it mean to be prudent? You know, and how are we passing on things that, you know, may or may not even be close to the truth? And they can cause harm. And it's unnecessary harm. And so to ask ourselves simply, do I know for a fact this is true? And even if the answer is yes, is it my place in this process to communicate that truth to a broad group of people? Um, I think all of us need to understand that. And honestly, I think for those of us who work in a church, and especially those who are priests or deacons, they speak with an authority And we shouldn't assume that because you're a priest, you have any more information about anything that's going on than anybody else. So I think it's being very cautious. Um, Is it really necessary for me to continue spreading this, whatever that is? And again, even if it's true, that doesn't mean it's mine to share. And so we have to be really careful. 
and I don't do this as well as I should, but I am trying to question myself before I post something like, what is my hope from people who, who will receive this? You know, this is going to come up on their feed. Am I trying to project an image or am, am I hurting in some way and I'm seeking some sort of affirmation or healing from what I'm posting? And that's not the place for it, mm-hmm. that I have to remind myself, like, take it to prayer, talk to somebody who I know is safe and knows me and loves me that I can, you know, just be real with. But well, the power of prayer, I mean, I don't think we probably talk about that enough, but the truth is we often say something like, well, all all I can do is pray, right? Yeah. All I can do. Let's, Mm -hmm. that's, that's everything that we can do in some instances. And when you think about it, when a situation arises, if everyone in the diocese, every soul in this diocese committed themselves to praying that the people who are making these decisions had the gifts of the Holy Spirit to have the wisdom and the clarity to come to some kind of discernment that is serves best all of those involved. That's very powerful. That's very powerful. And then I go back to that, and I don't even know where I got this, Cindy, but the is it true, is it kind, is it necessary? And Pope Francis has been using that, I yeah. think. Is it true, is it kind, is it necessary? And it can be true and it cannot be unkind. It might be kind, but is it necessary for me to share it? And, you know, the thing is, and I'm guilty of this too, where we share things that aren't mine to share. And in this instance, the harm, when you think of the harm that's already brought it forward, then to perpetuate that by saying something. And again, this is not not having a voice in how we do this. I can take as many calls as necessary of people who are angry and frustrated. It's okay. But just do it in a place that doesn't perpetuate the harm. And that all comes back to prudence, Mm -hmm. to really be praying for and thinking about what is the prudent thing as far as my role, as far as the situation. And, you know, I'm reminded, I don't know why this just came to mind, but um, Servant of God Dorothy Day says this, and I, it's, permeates my heart. The older I get, the more I'm convinced that I can only really work on me. Mm. The only thing I can do for others is love them. I need to repeat that Mm. nonstop. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Mary, thank you so much for your humility, your honesty, um, and that you see privilege in the work that you do because You really help us all on our journey, and me personally, so thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. The Church is committed to preventing abuse and adheres to the Charter for the Protection of Children and Young People. The set of policies and procedures includes the education of clergy, employees, and volunteers on the warning signs of abuse and steps to take if it's suspected. If you or someone you know has an abuse allegation, the diocese is available to help and listen. Visit the diocesan website at diocesefwsb.org and scroll down for the victim assistance link. You've been listening to Redeemer Radio features. For this episode and more like it, visit redeemerradio.com slash features 
or subscribe in your favorite podcast app.